All right, uh, we're going to take our Bibles together. I invite you to do so. Genesis chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 9. It's a lengthy section. I will not read it all. I'm going to read some of it. Uh, so page 7, it begins in the church Bible, if you choose to use that one. Page 7, Genesis chapter 10, we'll begin there. Uh, before I read any of the, the scripture text, I want to lead us in prayer. So I need divine help for this, and I trust that you do too. So would you join me in prayer? Our Father, this book that lies open before us, this is your word. It's living and active. It's unlike any other book, any other collection of words in the entire universe because it is yours. And when you speak, Father, there's an effect. Your word does exactly what you intend it to do. Uh, and you tell us that your word makes us wise to salvation. The Lord Jesus prayed that your word would sanctify us because your word is truth. And so we want those things to happen, Father. You also call uh, men to preach your word. And as the one who has been entrusted with this uh, responsibility now, Lord, I recognize my desperate need for divine assistance. I can't accomplish anything in the hearts of people. Only you can. So I pray that they would hear your voice above mine and that uh, all that I say is useful. And uh, anything that is not, Lord, that you would cause me to edit that on the fly or that you just kind of cause it to be blown away like chaff in the wind. But right now, what we want to do as we look at your word is, is to hear you. So help us to hear you and give us uh, receptive minds and hearts. And we ask all of this that Christ himself may be glorified. Amen. All right, well, let's look at our Bible text, uh, Genesis chapter 10. And I'm going to do some skipping here. Um, the, the section in chapter 10 is what's called a table of nations. So this is the setting here is following the flood and uh, Noah and his sons. This is what's going on. And um, prior to this, we had the incident of Noah planting a vineyard, becoming drunk on the wine that he made as a result of that. Then the curse against uh, his, his son uh, Ham, Ham's son Canaan, and the very blessing that would, that would flow to uh, the descendants of his son Shem. Now we're, we're being told a little bit of more detail about what happens after these three sons uh, populate the earth effectively through their, through their offspring. So, chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now we get to verse 2, and I'm not going to read all of these. Verse 2 to verse 5 lists the sons of Japheth. The sons of Japheth, by their, each with their own language, by their clans, in their nations. Uh, verse 6, the sons of Ham. And I want to point out Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Skipping down, that's verse 6, skipping down to verse 8, notice Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, 
Calmei in the land of Shinar. Now skipping down. Verse 15, we're told, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Now, and uh, verse 16, and the Jebusites. Now to verse 21. I know I'm skipping. To Shem also, the father of all of the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. Verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, chapter 11, and here's where we get to something that may seem a little more interesting. Uh, as uh, I heard, uh, I've said this before, Alistair Begg, he's uh, a pastor teacher in Cleveland area, written some books and has a radio program, but uh, he says about some parts of Scripture, not uh, all of Scripture is in equally inspired, but not all of it is equally inspiring. To read and that is true so reading a bunch of names sometimes can be challenging for us so here's where we get to a little more interesting story and I don't want to undermine the scripture but there's a reason why I focused on on some of the aspects of that table of nations and not the other uh, chapter 11 now the whole earth had one language and the same words and as people migrated from the east they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now again, a lengthy section. And you may be wondering, what's he going to do with this? And I wondered that all week. So um, hopefully I've landed on some ways that we can understand this passage of Scripture and, and make some application for our lives. And we know this to be true, that the, that the person you are, at least this is my sense of things, that the person that you are, whether in great or small measure, is, is to some degree owing to your own experiences in history, right? Has someone ever asked you, who are you? And, and they ask you that question when you've done something that seemed to them to be entirely out of character. And yet, 
They're saying, who are you? Because something in your past informed that you would do that thing at that moment, whether that was good or bad. Who are you? My kids say it to me when they notice a spark of generosity. They say, who are you? (laughs) Well, that's also true of families, isn't it? It's true of families and clans and ethnic groups and nations. Uh, Though similar in, in many ways, it's why Americans as a, as a collective are a little different than Canadians. Well, you know, this American history is, is the story of a forceful separation by revolution, right, from the Brits. Well, Canadians, I count myself among them still, though I live here, we celebrate together uh, a little differently. We, our, our history is one of easing British control. So it was gentler and more unassuming so canadians will celebrate on july 1st americans will celebrate on july 4th and while the differences are minor it's perhaps why canadians are inclined to say sorry not sorry okay sorry and you're welcome and maybe americans would just smile and say in a self-confident and assuming way "Uh uh-huh I notice that. But there's something about our history and a collective identity that that really accounts for even subtle differentiation. Well, moving now to the the Israelites. The the setting for uh, for understanding or hearing this story, getting this table of nations and, and hearing the story of Babel. They're about to cross. The Israelites are about to cross the Jordan River and they're about to possess the land of Canaan. What the Israelites needed to know was who they were. Genesis through Deuteronomy answers the question, how did we get here and what do we do now? How did we get here and what are we doing now? That land that the Canaanites are occupying, that the, that the, the Israelites will soon possess, has been described as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's in a sense the, the very Eden that Adam once possessed but lost because of his sin. So what they need is clarity. Clarity is seeing and knowing the truth. And confusion alternatively happens when the truth is obscured or denied. They needed clarity about their past. They needed clarity about who God is. And they needed the truth before them because when that truth is obscured or denied, it leads to confusion. So they needed clarity about who they were about what they needed to avoid. And in order to get that clarity, they needed to understand the human tendency to rebellion and the very confusion that results. Confusion is simply not understanding truth and as a result, seeking the wrong things. So as we uh, take a look at, unpack this story, uh, I want to I look at how we learn about this confusion. So it's the kind of thing not to do. Don't be confused because here's what happens. Confusion abuses God's gifts. That's the first thing that we'll notice. Second, confusion makes much of self. And third, confusion breeds contempt for God. Contempt. 
First of all, confusion abuses God's gift. And we understand, I hope we understand what gift giving is about. A gift is given on the basis of the goodness of the giver. I, I hope that's the way in which you give gifts. Because if the gift is given based on the worthiness of the receiver, then it's not really a gift. It's really, in fact, a payment or reward. But true gifts as well are thoughtful. They consider the well-being of the receiver. It's an expression of goodness. And, and so a gift, if it is indeed a gift, it is perceived by the receiver as a good, as something of value, as something that is beneficial. So true gifts in that sense are thoughtful. And the gift given in light of that is not given without purpose. For example, if, um, um, if you're a hockey player, okay, I got to use gifts that I'm, things that I know about, okay? If you're, if you're a hockey player and somebody gives you a, a tailor-made driver, well, we know what that's for, right? But, but if you take that driver and then use it in an ice hockey game, now I know it's absurd. The one who gave you the gift would go, what are you doing? That's not what it's for. And we get that. That's very clear, right? Taking any gift and using it for something that has not been intended is a kind of a, an insult to the giver. I think the same is true when God gives good gifts to people. Oftentimes, people take those gifts and God is saying, that's not what it's for. Well, let's look to our text. What are the, what are the gifts that God had given? And in, this, in the, the whole table of nations, we can see that God gave fruitfulness and increase. He gave them fruitfulness and increase. God's gift to Noah was the whole world before them, to his sons, his sons. So in the same way that the Lord, the Lord God, gave Adam this beautiful garden in Eden, he gave to Noah and his sons this whole cleansed world before them to be fruitful and to multiply. That land was the context within which they were to delight in the Lord, we're told in Genesis 9, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're told there he was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So every family on the earth, and the, the, the Lord had given the earth to them to, to enjoy. Now, they have to understand, Noah and his sons, they were selected. They were selected by God to repopulate the earth. That was a, a great benefit. They weren't swept up in the judgment. So immediately, they've got to be understanding what an amazing gift God has given to us. Noah, you and your sons, go in the ark. I will protect you now. Go, be fruitful and multiply. Now, if I'm one of Noah's sons, I, I think I should be thinking, wow, God was so, so good not to sweep me away. Well, they're to repopulate the earth. And they benefited from that blessing. That blessing of the, the Noah's sons, I should say. They benefited from that blessing that fell to their father. And God indeed blessed them so that they indeed multiplied. That's what this whole chapter is. It's the, the multiplication of peoples. Now in chapter 10, that dispersion through the earth 
is more fully explained. And, and if you were to count them up, there are effectively 70 nations. And, uh, and what this means, it's, it's highly symbolic. It's, it's 10 times the number of perfection. So what the Lord is saying through the scriptures here is that this is everything. This is the complete. This is everyone. No one's left out. But I want you to notice as well, it's not just names, but nations and territories. So if you just look through it, and I'll summarize it, these are the generations of the sons of Noah after the flood, the sons of Japheth, verse 2. Then in verse 5, it says, lands, language, clans, nations. And that pattern is repeated for Ham. Clans, language, languages, lands, nations. That's repeated for Shem. Clans, languages, lands, nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah. So effectively, this is everything. This is the whole earth. Now, in putting this here, this is all going somewhere. You know, why, why are these listed like this? Because we're supposed to see something else. Right here in the middle of chapter 10, we're given a little more detail that drives us to see what's going on in chapter 11, which then sets up the story of confusion. But first, we're introduced to Japheth, and we're told that, uh, that he's considered first. Then the focus um, and, and the reason he's just considered briefly is because as we move forward in the history of the Israelites, the interaction of the, the offspring of Shem, the Shemites, will be very limited. There won't be a whole lot going on of the interaction between Shem and the descendants of Japheth. However, the interaction between Shem and the descendants of Ham will be very significant. So Ham, in his line, though Ham is the youngest, he is considered second. His generations will prove to be Israel's nemesis. So we're, we're also given some information about what's to come. So the Israelites, again, they've been through this history. Now they're being given the story of the table of nations, and they can see, oh yes, oh Ham, that's his descendant. Oh, yes, I see. I see they, they were our enemies. Oh, yes, I can see them. But Shem gets the main focus as the last. Shem's generations are then driving towards Abraham. And this is where it brings in the entirety of the story from the beginning of Genesis. It is through Abraham's offspring, the fulfillment of the promise made to Adam and Eve through that somewhat obscured promise in the context of the curse on the serpent that the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. It would be through Abraham's line that this would be ultimately revealed. Canaan was cursed. Shem was blessed of the Lord. Now, all of that is to effectively say that the gifts given to mankind were the whole earth. And if God is saying, he's looking at the world, certainly there would have been times he would be saying, that's not what that's for. You're not using this in a way the gift was meant to be used. We'll unpack that a little bit more. Secondly, the gifts that God gave were skills. And we see this in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. People migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, at this point, it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong. So what's the confusion? What's the problem? We're driving there, right? Looking ahead to verse 4, we see that they took the good gifts that God had given and used them, not to bring glory to God, but to bring glory to self. And what the Israelites were to do at this moment as they're seeing this story is take this as a warning. A warning. Because they've seen this story told already. Their first parent, Adam, he was given the beautiful gift of a garden. And he used it in such a way that was not for its intended purpose. The Lord said, this fruit... You can look at it. It's beautiful. You shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They took what good, the good that God had given to them, and they squandered it, thus giving up that garden of delight, that Eden. So the Israelites were to take this as a warning. Now, God would soon give the Israelites the land of Canaan. So again, the context. They're looking over the Jordan River. The Lord has promised this land. It was a land with great wealth and opportunity. And I'll take you to Deuteronomy. They would be told this in Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 12. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities, listen, that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat of it and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't abuse my good gift. Don't, don't forget where it came from. And as we think about how we apply this to ourselves, think of all the ways that God in his goodness has blessed us. Just think of the nations of the world, and, and this nation in particular. What have we done with those gifts? Nations are full of people. Now, I don't want to harp on this too much, but it's been so much in our face because the month of June is this pride month. And the good gifts that God has given for man and woman to be in a covenant marriage for life. Now as a nation, we're, we're flaunting our collective embrace of something that God loathes. And he's looking at us and he's saying, that's not what it's for. That's not what it's for. And we can think of a myriad of other ways. That's just one that's before our faces constantly. Corporations flying that flag with all of the financial success that they've had flaunting in the face of God something that is loathsome to him. The Lord surely must be saying that's not what it's for. Now, listen. 
It's easy for us to stand here in self-righteousness and point at how well, how much the earth is messed up. But as believers, I think there are times we fall into that same trap, maybe in much more respectable ways. We, we put our confidence in the things that we have done. We hoard retirement accounts. I'm not counseling against wise saving and all of that, but instead of thinking of the wealth that the Lord has entrusted to us as an opportunity to bring glory to Him, we, aren't we so tempted and influenced by the world towards self-indulgence? But most, most significantly, I think, that we have been given a gift as believers, a gift in the Lord Jesus Christ of freedom, from the slavery to sin. As the Apostle Paul warns the Galatian believers, what are they going to do with that freedom? And he cautions them. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, love serve one another. When we take the freedom that we have in Christ and indulge the flesh, we're not using it right. We're abusing the good gift that God has given to us. And if that's you, perhaps you need to repent of something. I'll leave it between you and the Lord, but that's something that's I'm confronted with all of the time. You think about why the Bible says don't do this, do that instead. It's all about the good gifts that God has given to us. Are you abusing them or are you using what God has given for his glory? Well, when we misuse the good, uh, the good gifts that God has given, it demonstrates confusion, a lack of clarity and missing the truth. Second, confusion makes much of self, much of self. Um, I think about this a lot, and, and, and I know um, there's a, a perspective, especially as we approach uh, the July 4th Independence Holiday. This nation is probably not unlike other, nation, but other nations, but the idea of what I've heard is American exceptionalism. That's based on the idea of a, a national covenant, for lack of a better term. It's the freedom that we've enjoyed through our history has been in, ultimately entrusted to us by God. So the exceptional thing is not us as a people, but what's exceptional is what God has given to us and entrusted to us. When we take God out of the picture, when we think of exceptionalism not as a blessing from God, but as something that we created, then I think we're missing the point it can quickly move to arrogance and making much of self. And I, I, I say that because we see this on display in the text. Now, back in chapter 10, verse 8, we were introduced to one Nimrod. So, I'll read that. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So, we're introduced to this kingdom called Babel. Now, this commentary about Nimrod is given there because there's something that's more significant about his accomplishment. So, Cush, the son of Ham, 
his son Nimrod built a kingdom. Now, I don't know what happened along the way, but did this occur to you? When did Nimrod become a kind of a, a, an insult? I used to call my brothers a Nimrod. Uh, but maybe I was praising him. I don't know. But I didn't know. I didn't know about Nimrod in the Bible, but he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. But be that as it may, Nimrod was this mighty hunter, and he uh, had a reputation for being this, this kind of guy. It doesn't seem to be a negative statement, does it? But it must be because it's a setup to chapter 11, verse 4. It might be a negative thing. But minimally, minimally, we might presume that, that Nimrod's accomplishments before the Lord became, in the same way that we think about America as being entrusted to us, became a source of pride, not gratitude. And it certainly shows up in the kind of city he builds. Verse 10, in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So now we go to verse, uh, sorry, chapter 11. They said, so these people, they go to the plains of Shinar. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And here's the thing. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we'd be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they built a tower. The tower is effectively associated with the city, with the civilization, a ziggurat, uh, basically a temple to their own achievements. There's lots of archaeological evidence for these kinds of ancient structures. But note here, I want you to see something in the text that, that's not obvious on the surface, but I'll point it out to you. The Hebrew word that is translated Babel is the same Hebrew word that is translated as Babylon. Babel and Babylon are in fact the same city in the same region on the plains of Shinar. In Scripture, Babel or Babylon is not only a city-state, it's not only a physical place, but it is a spiritual state. I want you to get that. If you do a word search on Babylon, there are so, so many references Put it into your Googler there, and you'll, you'll find out so many references in the Bible to Babylon. Babylon in the Scriptures is the civilization that is ultimately opposed to the law of God and ultimately serves as the enemy of the people of God. For the Israelites, it was the place of their exile. When they followed their idolatry and took it to its logical end, the Lord said, you want it? Babylon, you go. And they spent 70 years there as a people. And the kingdom was never, ever restored to what it was before the captivity. It's the place from which the people of God will be rescued. And Babylon, Babel, is ultimately the civilization that will ultimately be humbled and thrown down. Now we get back to our text here in Genesis. What did the Lord do to Babel for their arrogance? The Lord says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. So the very thing that they were trying to avoid by making much of self was the very thing that God brought to them. And why did the Lord do this? Why? Because they were robbing God of glory the same namesake city, Babylon, in a similar way, Nebuchadnezzar, that king of Babylon in the time of Daniel, him expressing that same sentiment that the Babylonites who built the tower. If you know the part of the story in Daniel, he's walking on the roof of his palace and he boasts this way. 
Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? We shudder when we see those words. Yet in fulfillment of his own vision, interpreted by Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and he lived like an animal for seven years. The arrogance with which Babel and Babylon held itself up in effect in opposition to God who had given every good gift. Listen to what the Lord says of how the Israelites needed to be refined through affliction because of their idolatry, Isaiah 48, 11. And, and, and this can be applied to anything. For my own sake, this is about the refining that he's doing to Israel. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. Proverbs 3.34 says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Both Peter and James quote it, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, confusion, the confusion that the Lord pronounced upon them by dispersing them was simply the outworking of the confusion that was already in them as a result of the fact that they were building a name, a city to their own name, to exalt themselves. God's looking down. You're, you're going to take credit? Confusion is that inability to see what is true. And it's the underlying cause of arrogance and self-aggrandizing. And listen, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we need to have a humble attitude before the Lord especially when it comes to understanding our salvation. And, and this is why it is such an offense to the Lord, and it is a damning offense for anyone to come before God and think that somehow, some way, by, by virtue of their own collection of good works, they would come to offer to God to say, bring me to your kingdom. Look, look at these wonderful things that I have done for you. To that, the Lord says, Depart from me. I never knew you. And listen, if you're here this morning and you're thinking that you're going to be part of the kingdom of God because you have amassed a list of good deeds that you think God will smile upon and say, well, that's, that's good enough. You have missed the point. God has given salvation in his son alone. Your salvation is entirely dependent on what Jesus did for you. And if you want to be saved... And if you are saved, the only reason you are saved is because you have looked to the cross of Christ. You have seen what God has done in sending him for you to bear your sin so that you could be counted righteous in God's sight. And when we stand before him someday, what are we going to say? What are we going to say? All we can say is thank you. You did this. All praise to you. Thank you, God, for this indescribable gift. Well, finally, confusion breeds contempt 
for God, contempt for God. Perhaps you're uh, familiar with the uh, known, well-known atheist Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And something that, that has startled me about rabid atheists, people who deny God, they, they get their definition by being anti-something that they don't believe in, right? They don't believe in God, but they call themselves atheists. It's like they have no way to define themselves apart from a hatred towards the very existence of God. And I think atheism is what happens when you, are, you find yourself annoyed by God's law. It, it, it's, it's the the outworking of, a, of an attitude that says, I, I know you said this, but you know, I, I'd, I'd really rather do it this way. And in the end, they go down that path and they have utter contempt for God because God is on the throne and you're not, so therefore, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to be an atheist. I'm against God. And it comes in outright hatred. And you see it in the, in the writings of some of these atheists. It's not a sort of a, a bland, well, you believe what you want. No, but it's a, it's a kind of an angry contemptuous, fighting against the very belief in God. Well, I, I say that uh, to illustrate this point that confusion about what is true ultimately breeds this contempt for God. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. So this is in, in response to their building the tower, building the city. They're one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Now that might seem odd when you read that. Was the Lord threatened by the accomplishments of Babel, the city? Well, well no. Nothing that they propose rather refers to the evil desires of their hearts left unchecked. It's that same scenario that led to the flood in the first place, right? Remember the indictment. The Lord saw, this is Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 11, verse 9. As a result of the Lord confusing their language because they were already confused about what their purpose was on the earth, Therefore, the name is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all of the earth. When people become settled in rebellion, it leads to outright contempt for God and his word. And perhaps you know someone who has once tasted of the blessings of, or at least been in the orbit of those who are around believers and seen the blessings and they walked away it's tragic but there's this kind of progression of, of embracing more and more and more their rebellion and becoming contemptuous toward god this is what the apostle paul describes of those who go down this road of unbelief not acknowledging that the god is the creator of all things that he is the giver of all good gifts people who do not acknowledge him and since Romans 1, 28, it begins, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, 
haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The Lord confused them because their contempt for God would have multiplied over and over and over again. Concentrated contempt needed to be dispersed. And so he did. It was an act of his mercy on the earth. Listen, you may be here, listening, watching, and you've dabbled around the edges of being a believer. You've dabbled around the edges of what it means to truly believe in Jesus and follow him. You recall that Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If you've wanted to kind of embrace some of the benefits of belonging to Jesus, but, but not willing to give up the entirety of your will to his. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says, and we've been studying this in the... Uh, Sunday school class. And the writer there is using this imagery of the Israelites possessing the land of Canaan, the, the good gift of the land that, the God, that God had given to them, his rest. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So, the point. Put your whole trust in Christ. Because if you don't, eventually, you will have only contempt for God. And that will be to your eternal destruction. But the good news is if you have indeed trusted in Christ, you get all the benefits. The Holy Spirit, the constant voice of the Scriptures reminding us this way, go here, not there. The fellowship of the believers where we look out for each other. Don't go down that road. Go down this one. God in His goodness not only gives us the promise of rest, but He sustains us and gives us the means to fully enjoy it. Well, let me wrap this up going long. Clarity is seeing the truth. And like the Israelites who are about to cross the Jordan River and possess that land of Canaan, we, we who are in possession of an eternal promise of a home with Jesus, are called to live each day with clarity, resting in the truth of what God has revealed in Christ himself. So in light of that, we don't abuse the good gifts that God has given. We steward them for his glory. Whatever God has given to you, it is for his glory. Glory, so enjoy his good gifts, but give him glory in the enjoyment of it. And listen, we don't live to make much of ourselves. Not like the Babel, Babelites or the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar or the unfaithful Israelites. 
we, may, we live to make much of Christ. And because we have been bought with the price, because Christ has died for us and brought us near to God, we love God. We're commanded to love God, but how can we not? And we love everything that he says. So, we are called to clarity and not confusion. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the grace to call us to yourself and the, the fact that you've opened our eyes to see Jesus, your son, crucified and risen. And that puts everything else in our world in perspective. The good gifts that you've given to us. We see them as, as expressions of your goodness. We understand that we're stewards and not owners. And Father, we don't live for aggrandizing ourselves. We live for putting the focus on Jesus. So help each of us to do that. And God, teach us to love you and everything that you've said. As we wait for that glorious day of the appearing of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus, that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, everyone will know he is King and will live with him forever. Keep us faithful to that day. Keep our minds clear and focused. Help us to love your truth. We pray it for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we are... Uh